king and we want him now we want a king and we want him now we want a king all right we are back for another episode of civil discourse this is not a safe space I, this is now this is a big day ladies and gentlemen for the first time in the history of this podcast both of your hosts are in studio together. In the same room, looking at each other. The view is terrible. His is better. But honestly, <laughs> his honestly. His is better, but, I, but um, mine is just awful. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. You know, I would dignify that with a response, but... Uh, he can't come up with one at the moment. Honestly, give, him, give him five minutes. <laughs> I haven't had lunch, so uh, my brain isn't firing on all cylinders. So, so we, we did get to uh, ride motorcycles over on a beautiful New England afternoon, and it was... Uh, we actually came from the previous gig. Right, um, right. At the radio station over in Monroe, Connecticut. And uh, Mike joined me in studio over there. And then we uh, came over to Sacred Heart University to be in studio here with our illustrious editor-in-chief. Uh, Engineer Keith. Engineer Keith. <laughs> yeah. Um, which we are always excited to be uh, in part in parcel and company of. And of course, me being a smart man, I cannot see him because I picked the chair without the window view. He's, he's, he's sort of waving and giving... There he is. I got him now. No, so. no lewd gestures or anything So like So, you know, I want, I want to discuss uh, something today that is very near and dear to both our hearts and just kind of let's, let's talk about the, uh, you know, there was a movie back in the 70s called Perils of Pauline. Mm. Well, this is the perils of the music industry. So uh, it, it's... Uh, you know, I, I come from an era when you either wanted to be evil Knievel when you got older or you wanted to be a rock star or you wanted to be a movie star. And I wanted to be a rock star. And uh, so uh, I, I think a, a serious discussion about the music industry and the way it's trending right now. And uh, maybe we ought to go back a little bit and, and talk about the early history on how artists have always been the commodity and never really the talent. So, well, uh, the, uh, so. Here's the thing, and, and, and I'm all about some time travel conversation um, and looking at what's in the past. I think that for me, the most interesting thing, or at least the thing that I would throw down on the, on, on the uh, topical gauntlet today, is to look at, historically speaking, the development, and, and I'm always, again, the Luddite of the two of us, um, which is funny because I'm the younger of the two of us, True so story. I'm supposed to be the one that's glued to. But, but, ladies and gentlemen, just for the record, I'm sitting with a computer in front of me for reference. Uh, Mike has a, a, a smartphone in his hand, so that should tell you all there is to know about uh, who's more technologically ready to go. But to me, I think technology, um, or I'd like to at least uh, put out there for consideration. Has technology been the number one driving force in the shift of the industry in terms of not only talent, talent development and output, but also in the uh, professionalism or the concept of professionalism vis-a-vis -vis the quality of output and and then to throw in one third layer marketing? And the access that uh, talent has to actually get whatever they're producing uh, out there into the, the the ears and the and the eyes of consumers. And my argument would be yes. The question is, what has the quality um, ultimately been? So, with that layer of consideration dipped dipped on it, let's go back in time here. 
and back we go. <laughs> and so we're, we, we really go back to an era when, uh, and it, it hasn't really changed, where businessmen are sitting on one side and the artist is sitting on the other. And so you have, and the artists are typically, and we're just talking generalities here, relatively young, late teens, early 20s, maybe mid 20s at best, uh, even going back into the 20s, 30s and 40s where the talent's young and you have middle aged at that time, white men who, who are running these corporations that are putting out product, product being music, of course. I think it's worth uh, defining what we're calling what we're including in this conversation about the music industry, because, of course, there's a wide range of genre sure. that is affected here. And, you know, there are two elements that are are always part of this, maybe three um, entertainment. I'm going to say this in no particular order, actual artistic expression, regardless of the value of entertainment. Right. And then, of course, the bottom line, money, money. And I uh, hate to say it in the music industry, like any other industry, money drives the industry. And uh, there's a what have you done lately for me attitude in that regard. Uh, but I think really the money in music, if you're not selling the product, if, if you're the artist, the money is in the publishing. Who, who wrote the song? It's an interesting question from an artistic perspective. What has been the the primary driving force? Right. I think if you go back, I mean, I can't think of any period of time where the artist has not been primarily trying to survive. Right. And using their passion as the vehicle to achieve that survival. I mean, whether we're talking about Beethoven and Mozart, I mean, they were trying to sell their product. Um, of course, their product being their composition and, and before that performance. But it was still about getting paid to do it. And the contracts, it's, it's interesting if you go back to some of the, uh, the historical novels of, of the early classic and, and, and even Baroque, but especially in the classic period where music's really got out of the church, where, you know, the musicians got paid by the church, but the, 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 the industry of music, so to speak, in the sacred context was not a financial driving force. The church was its own thing that was funding the creation of the art for its own purposes. When we moved away from the Baroque period into classic music, now we're leaving Bach behind and going towards Mozart, Haydn, right. Beethoven, and so forth. And, and then... It's it's germane to today because it is fascinating how nothing has changed. You can go back and read some of these historical letters and writings and they were fighting with their publishers and they were arguing with and people were trying to bootleg all of their all for the purpose of of money. And I think that shift away from the sacred driving force you know, the, the sacred organizations, churches and whatnot, being the driving force behind creation, as opposed to the market economy being entertainment, in other words, being the uh, the driving force really was the start of of the financial uh, substance oh, driving aspect of Agreed. the industry. And, and sheet music was the way artists made money well into the mid 20th century. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you had the sheet music and you were selling it, you were making money. If you didn't, you were done. And and, and it, it was a system designed to favor educated musicians who could write sheet music, whereas uh, music that was uh, composed 
by year, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm specifically thinking of the Delta, the Mississippi Delta, where sure. a lot of music was composed. That music was assumed to be in the public domain because there was no sheet music. Whether Robert Johnson wrote it last week or last month didn't matter because there was no sheet music. It, it was public domain. And, and the story that, that I find intriguing in all of that is uh, we all know the song, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was written by a guy named, I think, Solomon Lindy. Linda, Solomon Linda. And he wrote that in the 30s in South Africa. And it was called, uh, it's spelled M-B-U-B-E. It's, we, we can't say it with our, our English accent, our, our English. Wimba. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an African word. And because he didn't write it as sheet music, though he did record it, it was assumed to be in the public domain. So when it came to the U.S., everyone took the writing credit from him, you know. Um, well, it's interesting you say that because I, and again, now coming back to this theme of technology, when the technology to record started becoming, um, what's the word I want to use? Mobile. Okay. So there was the time where the only way to record was to come into studio. Right. Um, and then we, it, it didn't take very long to get to the point where we could bring the studio to the artist, whether it was in their home or out in the street. A lot of these musicians we're talking about were homeless. Right. Um, that, and this happened all over West, I, I'm going to say Western music because I don't know that much about the Eastern process of development, but I know there are stories in England where, um, in Ireland and Scotland, uh, where, uh, certain people, would take a recording device out into the folk country and record, you know, just normal people who sang in, in groups and whatnot, and then come back and write that music down. And they might honor it as a folk song, but there actually was a human being who came up with right, it. Right, right, it was right. uncredited. <laughs> right. Well, and, and in the case I brought up, they went through the courts and, and finally mm-hmm. it was resolved long after Solomon Linda was sure. dead uh, and his heirs got pennies on the dollar of yeah. what they should have earned. But it's it's not an uncommon story. You know, the Library of Congress during the Depression sent out uh, people to record folk mm-hmm. musicians. Uh, a lot of the blues songs that we have today came from I'm sure they recordings. signed a release that said you agreed to you, not get paid yeah. for this. <laughs> well, you know, the funny, just a quick aside, the funny thing is there's a documentary out on the, on the particular song I'm talking about. And there's this beautiful, beautiful signature, mm-hmm. Solomon Linda, right? And his daughter said, my father didn't know how to write. It would have been an X. And so, uh, and, and, you know, he was a diamond miner in South Africa sure. by day. And, and then he, he was a musician at night. So this, I, I use that particular story as a microcosm of, of how the industry, while it's changed tremendously because of technology, it really hasn't changed The, the, the driving lot. forces behind it yes. are still the same. Yeah. And, and I think the technology... Uh, two things I would argue. The technology has shifted the way in which that bottom line has been pursued and amplified and, and made in some cases more accessible in other cases much less accessible, I'd argue. Um, an interesting you know, idea, if you think about it, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering a, a story that I learned back in school. And of course, there's tons of written material about this. But if you take Louis Armstrong, who was one of the first big time recording artists, the way we think of it today, right, right, right. Um, in studio with the group, his name's on the record, et cetera. That was a time in the early 
uh, mainstream recording industry where you walked into a room not much bigger than this studio we're sitting in right now. Which is probably, what, 10 by 9-ish? Yeah, yeah, maybe 15 by 10, but you know, yeah. certainly not a big, maybe an average kitchen uh, or something like this. Um, there was a singular mic that stood in the middle of the right. room and all the musicians had to stand around that mic. Bluegrass is still recorded this way. Uh, they, they've, for the quality of the sound, I guess, has appealed. So they still actually tend to perform and, and record around one mic. Uh, and the gone are the days where every musician's in their own private little, you know, box. Right, right, right. <laughs> But what's, uh, again, a side story with Louis Armstrong, Louis Armstrong, who most people today think of him uh, as a singer, you know, what a wonderful world. He was a trumpet player. He reinvented and, and uh, probably not reinvented. I think he probably is almost sole, solely responsible for the modern concept of of jazz as we think about it. There are a lot of other players back there, but he goes back again to that first major recording uh, studio concept, and he took the trumpet, and 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 the way you approach not only the instrument but the material in a place nobody had ever gone before, and he played louder than anyone had ever played before, and so the way you controlled the balance with one mic was you made people stand at different distances right. from the microphone. Well, Louis would have to be out in the hallway. <laughs> Because <laughs> nobody else could could you know get through, and he wasn't going to change the way he played, so he he did what he did, and they they made it work. Gone. That's a long stretch from now. You can sit in your literal garage, uh, wherever you may be, with your computer and and your mic, and uh, you know manipulate and all this <laughs> well, other. And kind I of can stuff. send you the files over WeTransfer, and sure. and you can now put your editions on, and, what, and, yeah. and yeah, and I have a safe copy because you can do whatever you want. Back gone are the days of tape; it's all digital now, and, and so there's a lot more music out there. There is. I mean, you just have to hunt for it. You can go on a, a site called Bandcamp. And yeah. every musician in the world can promote their music on Bandcamp. You can buy it digitally or you can buy actual physical product there. And uh, it's what the Lazarus Trio uses. Uh, and, and it's there and, and it works. And so there is an embarrassment of wealth of music. Of course, the problem is when the, we divvy up the pie of revenue, now the slices are much thinner. And so... Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> and that's to assume that revenue maintained. Revenue didn't maintain because so many people now can either stream music where you get a fractional cent for yeah. each stream yeah. or they just go out and they download it. So two different aspects. OK. And I know that we, the two of us, can appreciate this, but I would imagine most people can certainly if they don't have some relation to it directly, they, they'll understand it. You're talking about a couple of different pies. There's the revenue pie. Yep. Okay. Then there's the actual artistic talent pie. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> and then, of course, a third one I'll throw in, which is related to the talent side, but I call it the professionalism pie. And th that one, I think, might be one of the trickiest places to be because professional does not necessarily mean trained in the classroom, no, so to speak. No. Um, the you know the classroom of life, I suppose, and experience. A lot of the greatest of any industry are people who learned doing, not necessarily just studying. Which is not to knock formal study and education either. 
But so Keith and, and and he might jump in on this this topic. He works on this podcast as not only a contributor of thought and idea, but he actually knows how to edit, knows how to make you know corrections as needed, balancing of sound and volume, things that frankly, while I probably could figure it out with some time, he is what I call a professional. And I am very grateful, and I think you probably would echo me on this, to have a professional Absolutely. doing that. Now, here's the here's the, the catch-22. And sorry, Keith, technology being what it is, we don't need you. You're 100% correct. Right. You don't need me. So bye. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not firing you yet, Keith. So. But to, to your point, though, there because we go this with other applications as well in our classes where – Things we used to teach a year or two ago in Photoshop are automatic features in your camera app on your phone now. Yes, yes. You yeah. know, the, this board that I'm using, if I wanted to, I could set it up to auto mix all of your levels. Absolutely. And just let it ride. Absolutely. Now, somewhere behind the deep, deep, deep curtain of all that technology, there does still need to be somebody who knows how to do it. Who knows how to program the machine to know that, but that what used to be an ocean of skilled talent in, in the professional idea is now a pool is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And not only that, the technology is getting smaller. This board that's has true. virtual machines built into it. So in a recording studio used to be a rack of outboard compressors sure. and modulators and Rooms. echoes and it's all, all yeah. this it's all effects are all <laughs> software yep. inside the board now i have uh eight different boards inside of here in this little compact unit that would have taken up half of a rack from well, it's like four feet tall in a studio producing more heat and electric and using more electricity sure. that i don't need anymore well and time would be that in a recording studio you'd probably have five or six guys in there also you know on various different aspects of that's that's been a few years since we've been there but um now like you say we're down to one and really don't necessarily even need that as long as we well, are willing to dedicate now that's the general per, idea perhaps that's the general <laughs> idea right but i would agree with where you're going which is that is the output as or better as good or better without the human professional involvement it's consistently it's consistently good meaning i'm going to even argue maybe generally accepted as good enough well and my point i think is is it's 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 good you don't have the terribly terribly mixed stuff now that you yes. used to get uh, it's better than that. The problem is it's not sublime or excellent or or above above good, you know, very good or, or really good. Uh, and, and the other thing is we, we live in a really odd time uh, where we have all this digital, digital, digital. You can get it. I remember when buying a recording that was digital, digital, digital was a huge thing. And now we're buying LP records, which is is what, 100-year-old technology? At least 100-year-old technology? Edison invented in, what, the early early 20th century, if I remember correctly. And, and so, yeah, we, we've gone backwards because we like the sound of analog. Now, okay, so <laughs> so here's touches on point number whatever we're on at this point. <laughs> 63, point 0.63. Which would be that for the, and you have to go with average, maybe even slightly above average consumer, can they tell the difference? 
Can they tell the difference between a, well, you're talking sublime sound quality. You know, there's there's a wonderful, you know, reality that, <laughs> so for those of you listening, Mike and I, and, and, and Keith probably, I would imagine, can appreciate this. I don't know what you have at home, but I know you appreciate good technology. We're big stereophiles. Right. And... The argument we'll always hear is, you know, digital digital's way better than analog or analog's way better than digital. And people go back and forth. I've always kind of stood on the fence of if it's recorded to be digital, then a digital delivery system is probably what it's designed to, to give its best presentation. If it's a recorded analog, um, then an analog system is probably where you're going to get the fullest experience. But if you have... $10 million of investment in technology and professionalism in the studio, but you're listening on a $5 speaker at home, it's not capable it, it of matter. delivering all of that professionalism and sublimeness we're talking about. Especially if you're listening in 128-bit compression MP3, sure, which has washed out all the, all the symbols are gone. The drum symbols are all gone off of your music because it's gone. Yeah. It's not there. It's in the, it was it was considered to be uh, the worthless, range is worthless not in data. There. Yeah, it was yeah. worthless data and it's, it's chucked off. And, and I know we're really nerding out here because I, I, I like to hear that stuff. But but that has changed the industry because at that 128-bit compression MP3 is a very small file. Mm-hmm. And so I can send that to you as an email attachment with mm-hmm. modern email. And now you and I are sharing Solomon Linda's uh, The Lion Sleeps Tonight song. Uh, so, so really, in the end, we're still uh, victimizing the artist to bring us all the way back around to the very beginning. Uh, but... It's a two-edged sword. While we're victimizing the artist because now I can share his music without his permission, uh, I can also go in my home studio and record something that would have blown away uh, Sun Studios in 1954. And by the way, real quick aside, Sun Studio recording, if you go to Sun, you record, it needs to be listened to on a record, (laughs) an LP, because that was one of those studios, by the way, that had the tape on the floor where you put the bass player here and you put the guitarist over there and the vocalist goes here. So, uh, but yeah, it's a two-edged sword and technology always is. Uh, And and as an artist, when you get that check, and I'm not kidding, when you get that check for three cents because of your (laughs) streaming revenue for the last year, that's a blow to to realize that I, I, for a hundred and whatever, whatever plays or 300 plays, I'm getting a penny. Well, and, and again, we're talking about a pie. And as you, as you mentioned, and you know, you can infinitely slice a pie smaller and smaller oh, yeah. by degrees, but then each slice is less and less meaningful. Your raspberry pie becomes a raspberry seed pie. <laughs> so. And I think it works both on the revenue side, as we've talked about, you're starting to chop up the value of professionalism yes. in the sense of training and experience. What's the point? I can get as good for the average listener's discernment uh, by sitting at home in my own bedroom, practically, and, and, and doing these recordings. And the number of people who have either the ear slash taste slash equipment to discern the difference between good enough and sublime is smaller and smaller. Um, and then I would also question, and, and again, talking about catch 22s in many ways, the technology has, has opened a, a pathway to out to, to getting your work out there 
for so many more people that would never have had it before. Many of whom are real talent. Of course. Are genuine talents that would have been lost to time. But Catch-22, when more is out there, even if some of it is more genuinely decent... The signal-to-noise ratio has increased significantly so as well. So are they actually getting any more exposure than they otherwise would have because it's just part of a larger sea of noise? Well, and of course, there's no accounting for taste as well. And then add that. Yeah. How many people really aren't that talented, really aren't that skilled, but because of the technology... They're able to fake it till they make it. So, of to course, speak. of course, and, and you know, I, I I think it's interesting talking about the abilities of the technology. Uh, you don't have to do multiple takes anymore. I hit I hit a flat note. The engineer can go in and move that note slightly so it's no longer flat. Auto tune. Well, it's it's really not even auto tune. He can manually do it sure. so you don't get that auto tune sound. We all know the auto tune sound, by the way. Uh, I, I know a lot of hip hop artists mm. use it intentionally. Uh, the first real uh, auto tune song that was obvious was the Cher song from like the '90s, uh, "If I Could Turn Back Time" or mm. one of those, where she yeah. she just was super auto tuned. Uh, but yeah, you, you don't even have to use auto-tune. You can just go in and, and move the notes on the computer screen. To change. That's a little touch flat, so let's fix that. And, and you go in and do it. And I obviously know this for a reason because I've, I've, I've shot my share of flat and clinkers out there in, 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 at 2 a.m. in the recording booth. So uh, do I want to do it again and be honest? Or do I want to just fix that one bad note because everything else was great? So um, Well, and this is, you know, as far as art, I'll just, I'll say this about autotune when you're doing it because it's an effect you want to that's different you know layer onto your 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 music it can be kind of fun when you're doing it to correct skill right and ability that to me is a problem but i'm also a musician so i'm gonna be a little judgy on <laughs> this on. one i have a thing about that Uh oh <laughs> because would you say the same thing about someone that color corrects a film scene post-production because they weren't a great cinematographer on the scene that well, day. Well, it's funny you bring uh, film up because I, I was actually going to make a photography analogy or to this. Photography, whatever. And and think about the difference in in photography today. Photography, excuse me, um, because of digital photography relative to film. You know, time was you needed to know how to hand, film was expensive. You needed to understand the equipment, the theory behind light, dark shadows, etc., and you couldn't afford to waste shots right. because this, you know, film is money. Now, so you can, you know, a wedding you'll have thousands of photos. Well, well and that's, maybe you'll get ten that are worthwhile, but you can, yeah. you know, shoot. Well, and that's my game. kind. That's my kind of photography. I'll be honest; I'm not talented enough. And I, I did start with black and white film because it was cheap. You could sure. you could do it at home, and you could play with it at home. And now I just shoot a lot, discard the bad ones, keep the good ones, and and, and the really and the really 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 good ones are really, really, really good. And um, you can go in with... Even the, a blind squirrel can find enough. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and there's some truth to that. But I, I think Keith's question is legit. Yes. And, yeah. and if, it's, if it's a question of, do we have to change, do we have to correct 75 or, or 100 bum notes in a three-minute song? We're talking about a talent issue there. We really are. I, I think that's exactly right. And, and I, I fully agree with that. It's one thing to have something that is a... I mean, the greatest artists in the world still hit a wrong note, had a wrong color. A plane flew in front of the sun and changed the condition or whatever it right, is. Right. Um, but if that's the 
that's the baseline we're working with everything screwed up then yeah it's not a, a freaking accident it's the talent yeah or the skill wasn't there in the first I, I place and you know one of one of the artists we talked about in, a couple three weeks ago was elvis elvis was renowned for being one or two takes and he was done mm-hmm. he, he nailed it within two takes almost every time uh, so there, there was obviously some ability there that we're talking about, uh, regardless of how you feel about him as an artist. Whereas uh, uh, Britney Spears' sister or or whatever, one of them was so auto-tuned that when the they had to play her on tape, uh, it wasn't Britney Spears' no. sister; it was one of the other ones. Uh, she, you know, you go into concert and they're they're not live; they're they're Memorex for the old commercial for those of you old enough to remember it. So well. And, and which brings up another interesting thing, again, going back to technology. Time was if you went to see, um, you know, p- pick your artist, uh, whether it's Louis Armstrong or I don't know about Michael Jackson. I'm going to put an asterisk next to him. Uh, but he's a great example of maybe the crossover period. I think if you saw the Jackson 5 perform that era. That was real. They were actually yeah, that was singing real. and dancing. Yes, but their dancing was a lot more limited in range of movement than later Jackson, to stay with him, when he's flipping and flopping. Was he still singing live? That's a, that's because I don't know how you do that and stay on. Well, th- that has been a discussion, and I, I I don't know for certain. But what I've read and, and seen of that, the argument is yes to both. Some of it is pre-recorded. Some of it, it was him really singing. Uh, well, and a lot of times on, there are multi layers right. where. Right. You know, he's still singing, but it's not necessarily the all of what we're hearing that that that's going on. There are, however, again, getting back to your point, it's sort of standard expectation. I think a great example of this uh, is the the ball dropping in Times Square New Year's. Uh, it's sub zero temperatures. It's all this other stuff. The other one would be the inaugurations. I think it was Yo-Yo Ma a couple years back. I forget which president. Um, might have been Obama. I can't remember, but he can't take his multi-million dollar, you know, eight hundred year old degree weather, yeah, <laughs> out into that weather. But then why bother? You know, why have that that pretense? Because he's not playing. And, and that's not for lack of talent, obviously. He literally cannot bring that instrument into that weather. It'll break. And there goes, you know. Millions and <laughs> millions and millions. Uh, and yeah. history's gone forever. And, and, and it's, it's, it's there, there's some, the other thing, you know, when you go to see Michael Jackson, God rest his soul. But when you went to see him, you expected show, you expected dance. Uh, the technology that was on the stage at that time was incredible where he had little, uh, Little metal posts oh, that would come shoes. up to grab yes, the shoes, yes. so he could do all those bending moves, and yeah. and you know it was so well. Corey, we're not denigrating the talent of the man. Uh, well, and the show was more than just the right. singing and the music. His dancing was as much part of, of the latter Michael <laughs> than. But now take that trend that maybe started with him. In the sense of the modern, the very concept. athletic yeah. dancing, yes, yes, I, I and throw up the Britney Spears and some of these uh, uh, more contemporary. She's not even contemporary now, but whatever version of her would be out today, and you now have just aerobic, you know, crazy Olympic level flipping and flopping and this, that, and the other going on, and it's just understood they're not singing, right. 
You're you're there to see the show. They're not because well, we know they're not singing because lights have gone out and think plugs have been accidentally pulled and the lip sync is not right. This happened. I forget who the artist the artist quote unquote was on uh, Saturday Night Live. Ashley Simpson. That's well, who Ashley I was talking Simpson about. That's was. who I was yes. trying to talk about yes. earlier. Yeah, I was just looking it up. I just found it as you said. <laughs> yeah, it was Ashley. It was Ashley Simpson. And that's who I was back in 2004. Yes. She was a sister, not a sister, but a sister. <laughs> Jessica Simpson's sister. Yes. Right, right. That's who I was trying to think of earlier. And, and you know, and, and this this is to, to, to kind of circle back around. This is where the music industry mm-hmm. in many aspects is much more concerned with how you look, mm-hmm. how you present, and how polished you are. And, and I always, I, I refer back to Nashville because I've been to Nashville many times, uh, though I'm not a country music um, aficionado. I, mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with it. Um but the B talent in Nashville is probably the more talented group of musicians. Usually, I'm not saying always, but usually. And the reason why the B talent is the B talent, not the A talent, is they're not as pretty. They they don't mm-hmm. present as well. Uh, maybe they're not. A, they can't dance the way the A talent dances, or or maybe they're just not as graceful. But musically, they they are oftentimes much more solid. And, and I've often said the best music being played in Nashville is on church on Sunday mornings. Oh yeah, because those are the paying gigs for that B level talent where mm-hmm. they can make some money to live. Uh, and so it's it's a it's an interesting issue. I don't think it's a new issue. I'm pretty sure we we talked about Elvis. Elvis became Elvis because of the way he looked and the way he danced on the stage, along with his talent. Uh, but there were lots of other singers that were just as good as he was, I'm sure. And we never heard of them. Well, and <laughs> and, and the ingredients to success are so varied. Uh, I mean, the bottom line, I think, is still consistent. It's somebody looking and saying, we can make money off this. Absolutely. Um, and nobody looked at Elvis's music and said, we can make money off this. If it was the music, there were, as we've discussed, plenty of musicians already doing that long oh, yeah. before he came along. Oh, yeah. Even I would argue if it was the dancing, it was not, he wasn't the first to swing his hips around. No, it, it was Any an more image. than Michael Jackson was the first to moonwalk. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> no, it, it's an image. And Michael had that image. Elvis had that image. Well, he, uh, it, 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 I mean, let's not just beat around it. It, it was also his ethnicity. Of course. He, it was not offensive in the same sense to have a bunch of women screaming and hollering about a white boy up there doing those things in the sense that offensive is the wrong word. It was not inconceivable, which it was prior to that. The idea is offensive, but not the action yes. is offensive. Yes. And, and, you know, and, and I, I actually did do a little research since our last time we discussed this. Uh, Elvis grew up in a black neighborhood. Sure. And, and so he did learn. He was doing what he had grown yeah, up seeing. And so I, which I was unaware of that he grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood in Memphis, uh, Tennessee. Uh, but you get a bunch of upper middle class young white girls throwing their money to, and among other things, among other things, right? <laughs> to, um, uh, to you know, see someone do that, the, the, the dollar signs started to appear in the eyes of the producers, and then, and and we've touched upon this in my mind, you know, they started to realize they'll pay to see people of color do the same stuff. Sure. And now, now Chuck Berry, who, who's a good-looking guy, gets on the stage. Uh, now Little Richard, who's a good-looking guy and safe for other reasons, 
is getting on the stage. <laughs> but you can go right down the line. And, I mean, and, but, but uh, Ray we, Charles, all of these, he didn't dance, but all of these people started to have an access <laughs> to mainstream presentation that wasn't there before. I, I mean, I'm chuckling, though, because Little Richard was the one that really, while they, they were more than thrilled to sell his records in the North, they still repackaged him having Pat Boone sing his music so it could be sold in the South, right? So, so you know, Good yeah. Golly Miss Molly sung by Pat Boone. And by the way, don't don't go to YouTube. Listen to the Little Richard version. It's much, much better. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it comes back, though, to the artist as a commodity. And, and how has it played out now in the 21st century from my perspective? And this is just my perspective is we have a system now where the music is considered an introduction to the artist. Uh, don't expect any money from the music because that's going to that's gonna get you fans. And, and you're going to make your money when you go out and play live. And what the promoter, another level of businessmen, here we go, the promoters for live shows are saying, oh, you're supposed to make your money on the, the recordings. Here you're going to break even. So, so musicians are, are really struggling to make money. Right now, from what I understand with all my friends in the music industry, they're making the money when you go to the booth at the show and you buy a CD or you buy a T-shirt or you buy something at the booth, that is where the money is being made for the artist himself. Yes, merchandising is exactly where the money is being made. The other option that a lot of artists are starting to tap into goes back to 1500 when the church was the, um, the patron of musicians. Now you can go to Patreon or one of the yes, other platforms. and have people specifically. And I yeah. can give Charles $5 a month for his music, $60 a year. And if I get, if Charles gets a couple, three, four, five thousand people to do that, he makes enough money to, to at least perpetuate the music. The band that introduced that concept, by the way, was a band called Marillion out of England. They had been signed to a... Uh, multi-album deal by EMI Records, which is a big conglomeration. And they had top of the chart, top 10 songs, did very well in the 80s. And in the 90s, the music industry had moved on. And so they went the independent route and literally got 30,000 people to sponsor a concert tour in North America. They were the first artists to do this and were able to break even on that tour. So they didn't owe any money to the uh, industry. And consequently, they did the same sponsorship model for all their CD releases, all their music releases. And I heard an interview recently with Steve Hogarth, the lead singer of that band. He said, we make more money as independent artists being funded by our fans than we ever made with EMI Records. So th that's the modern that's version, literally called Patreon right. uh, or some other model Pat like it. It's a patronage model for yes. music. So we've returned to what but was cool we're returning back to <laughs> classical period in the in the uh, genre sense of, of music finance because those early musicians post-church um, and, and, and really, like you say, the church was the patron primarily right, right. for most musicians in, in a mainstream way uh, back in Baroque era, 1614, 1600s. Um, but in the classic period, Beethoven, Mozart, they literally lived off of patrons, which were wealthy people right. who said, I will fund you x number of ducats or whatever they were doing at the time um to 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 write i mean either commissions directly write me a symphony or i will fund you for the next six months or a year or whatever 
um, write a piece with my name on it and anything else you want to go for that period of time. And it's interesting because, you know, what is it? The more things change, the The more they are the same. (laughs) And let's be honest, that, that patronage model never really went away. If you subscribe to the symphony, you were a patron of the symphony. Well, see, it's interesting because it, it, in large groups like the symphony, yes, you would have patrons of the symphony, a bunch of individual smaller entities, you know, individuals or, right, or right. people or so Throw forth. Throw a couple hundred dollars, get five tickets to the symphony and or whatever. The, yeah. The, that model fell away when it came to individual right. artists uh, for a long time. Um, you couldn't, you know, in the last hundred years or so, I mean, there might be a couple exceptions out there, but generally an artist did not find a wealthy person um, that was solely funding their continuation, uh, uh, their creative continuation in the, in the form of one source or maybe two. Um, And Patreon is like you say, they're taking that smaller numbers with larger in, you know, uh, funding and making and spreading it out. And now you can have a thousand people giving you $5 instead of one person giving you a thousand. Uh, and of course, people can give as much as they want. Right, right. Um, which, by the way, we might be funding this podcast before too much longer in a similar form. <laughs> well, well, and it, it is a discussion. It works in podcasting. Yeah. It works in lots of other formats. Uh, it, it's one of those things where uh, it, it is a model for the future. It does provide the artist a level of freedom that he or she's not going to get from the music industry who's going to mold them and 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 have them record very specific stuff. And the consumer, I would say, gets to be more specific about where they want to see. And, you know, if through those kind of crowdfunding type models, I can uh, specifically give my money to the Lazarus Trio directly, right? right. not to something that 90% of it's going to go to the producer or the, you know, whatever it is. And the artist gets a dollar or something out of my whole contribution. Well, and that's, that's the beauty of sites like Bandcamp. And I'm sure there are others. Uh, Bandcamp takes a 10% fee, mm-hmm. uh, which by the way, is inverse of what an artist would get if you buy from the record store. Sure. So, so, you know, if, if you buy a CD for $12, they take their buck 20 in the end, I still walk away with a 1080, mm-hmm. uh, which and then the cost of production is a couple bucks. So I'm walking away with eight bucks from a CD. That's not bad no. compared to a uh, dollar or, or or eighty cents that an artist is getting from EMI or Atlantic Records or whatever. Uh, so well, what was it, Ray Charles? I think one of his first deals was a nickel per yeah. record or something like yeah. that. And that was probably a good deal at the time. Wow. Uh, it's 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 craziness. So it's not a new problem. It's a problem that has shifted because technology's changed the industry. Uh, I, I just gave you the silver lining, though. If you like, uh, I'm trying to think of the hillbilly. I'm making up a group, the hillbilly monks. If you like the hillbilly <laughs> monks who play hillbilly music with a Christian bent, and you go on to Patreon and you say, "I'm going to give you twenty bucks a month." Mm. And 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 five thousand of us do that, twenty bucks a month. Now they can live and produce great music and not have to hustle for business. You mentioned earlier the patron model. Uh, I do know of one case where that happened in the seventies with the band Supertramp, which I don't know if you remember or not. They had the song, the logical song, and Breakfast in America. They're they're played on uh, classic rock stations mm-hmm. all the time. 
Uh, and they had a patron for the first two or three years of their career to get their stuff together. Mm -hmm. But of course, he was looking for the payoff <laughs> when they got the record deal, right? Yeah. So they could they could get. Uh, he was investing in them. But you're right. I, I don't think it's a, a a model that was around for a few hundred years. Um, not well. I don't know if I if it was that long, but. Uh... At least not in the 20th century. I, I can't honestly speak that 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 educatedly about it. I I don't. It 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 was a major model in the classic period. Right. That it certainly spilled over into the romantic, but which you know now we're talking late 1800s in mid mid to late 1800s. But once we start hitting the 20th century, I can't think yeah. of if examples that were as clear. And, and well documented no, as before I, I, that. I think more often it was uh, some uh, entertainer saying, hey, I like your music. I'm going to have you uh, open my show or I'm going to have you on stage with me. The other thing that that um, was a major part of a lot of these artists was the uh, the academia. Um, and this, you know, probably across different fields of art is true, but I know it was the case in music. A lot of, especially the early 20th century um, musicians that we still know today and listen to their music, Debussy or, you know, Ravel, all these people. Uh, and again, I'm looking at it from a classical perspective because I think it shifted once we got away from classical music into what we call pop music as a separate genre. Um, most of these guys were teaching at universities. They Their primary source of, of income was as an educator, you know, both of... You know, even if they weren't necessarily in the classroom, the way we think of it, they were still funded by a university or a, an academic institution. And within that context, they were writing and they were composing right. and they were performing, um, selling the music per page, so to speak, not necessarily the way we think of it um, today. And, you know, that that's an interesting thing when the patron model went away. In the same sense, churches necess didn't necessarily step it in, but did the academia institutions step in as those patrons uh, to, to replace that model? And then I think we've probably gotten away from that now again, as, as we say. Well, I think the, the pop music equivalent of that or rock, it's probably more of a rock music thing is, is how many musicians are teaching guitar? They're teaching drums. They're teaching bass. They're, they're teaching kids how to play. And I mean, literal kids. Mm -hmm. uh, my son's uh, third guitar teacher uh, was a professional musician or is a professional mm -hmm. musician. And, and, you know, he had gotten to that level where he'd gone through enough teachers that I can't teach him anymore. So I, I had to go cough up uh, 120 bucks a week or whatever it was for him to get taught by a serious guitar player. His name is Stanley Whitaker, by the way, if you're a, a music person. Uh, and so I, I think the music lesson thing is a ver is a similar version to that. It, it it probably doesn't pay much different than academia. So well, private instruction has been around right through the whole line, right? Um, and you know, we we could do a whole other podcast on uh, music education, um, it, you know, formal and, and individual and so forth. But I would I would argue that has been a constant source uh, for most musicians that haven't made it, so to speak. I just did an air quote for those of you who care. <laughs> well, it, Mike got to enjoy it. I did. I did. And, and Keith, if he was looking at us when, when you did it. Uh, um, but, 
you know, it, there's a difference between private uh, instruction, which again has, I think, been through and through all the, all the way, and institutional uh, employment uh, as a teacher. Right, but but that changed dramatically with pop music in the yes. 50s and 60s because prior to that, you know, your, your music teacher came with their sheet music, they put it on your piano and you, you went over the sheet music and, and you played. Well, I don't think rock was something that right. most institutes of higher learning were, you know, Berkeley School of Music right. did not exist yet. Well, but, but, you know, now you have a guy who can't read sight read. He, he plays with tab. He wants to make a living. He, he's teaching people chords uh, on the guitar. Yeah. I, and um, and thank goodness for that. You know, we want musicians to be able to eat and continue to make music. Uh, life would be awful boring, at least in my opinion, without music. Um, but I think I wonder if there are as many incredibly wealthy musicians today. Or has that just like big business, has that stratified into a very small select group? Um, much is, is that any different, though? I don't know. I, 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 I've not met a lot of people who I know who did have songs in the charts that were wealthy. I, I think the, the ones who are wealthy are the Michael Jacksons of the world, the ones who sell multiple units. I mean, if you think over a about, long period of time, I, you know, names that pop to mind often, perhaps I'm sorry to say, not because I don't like the genre, but it, it's it. I think there are people worthy of, of the same success in other genres, but hip hop and whatnot, the Beyonce's, the Jay-Z's, the, these are, you know, mega stars that we would say are wealthy, successful musicians. I just said another air quote. Um, but take Wynton Marsalis, for example. I think he's done pretty well. He's not exactly starving. He's probably made, you know, he's probably worth a couple of million if, you know, if he's Perhaps. invested well and so forth. But I don't think there's any chance that he's at the level of, of return. And we could probably have a real controversial argument about who is the better skilled, trained and, and you know, formally whatever musician. Well, I, I don't think it's going to be much of an argument. I mean, Winton has all the formal training that a musician can get, period. It's classic and jazz. And, and, yes. And, and, he's and an educator. It, he's... Right. <laughs> can I ask a question? Yeah. Sure. Cause, well, because you, you said wealthy musicians. I mean, first of all, definition of wealth. How much money is wealth? Like, <laughs> are really... you talking about musicians? Because there's different levels, right? You have the musician, like you said, that still gives the guitar lessons on the side because they're accomplished, but they still need to make more money or they want to. Then you have the Beyonce's and the Jay-Z's and all the that. Multi-millionaires, multi yeah. But there's a lot in the middle, too, that are touring musicians that make enough money off of music where they don't have to do anything else, but you don't see them their names on the mark, the big marquees. They're playing the smaller stages across the country. Well, I think the, the question was, do we have, does, does, does the range of successful... Has wealthy musician in the sense of household name. Yeah. I think you have to say if we're at that level, because you're absolutely right. There's a whole world of people who are the back, you know, the backup singers, dancers, players, the Rangers, writers. Well, no, that, I'm talking about bands that have been around for 30 years that are touring bands for 30 years, but they're not necessarily household names in every household. Well, they're, you, they're well, more a niche group. Give, you know? give me an example. They might be giants. Or, or, or 30, they've been playing for 30 years. Yeah. Out of Brooklyn, they write uh, scores for TV shows. 
Um, but so they're, 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 but they're not like they're, they're not selling out stadiums. They're playing Toad's Place in New Haven. So I would call, so <laughs> let me make a comparison um, with with a background from in the acting world. I call th- there's a difference between a star. And a working actor. And a working actor. And they might be giants or working musicians. And, and, and without naming names, Mike has known some of the people in, in my past. I can think of people who are working, successful actors, not household names, but maybe faces. There's a difference between someone who's a name and a face. And you can say, oh, I've seen that guy before. But their W-2 still says actor. Oh, yeah. They're paying their bills with their acting work and they're living comfortably. You know, and maybe even a little above comfort, but they're not Brad Pitt. <laughs> well, and, and they never will be. In the music industry, you have the, and they might be giants is a great example. Uh, Steve Hackett's a touring guitar player. I think he's in that same tier mm-hmm. as they might be giants. He played here recently at um, the venue that the girls went to, our, yeah. our wives went to, uh, Daryl's house. Daryl's house, yes. House. Yeah. You know, these are these are guys that are making a comfortable living with music. Uh, Steve might be a, a a relatively wealthy if he manages money well because he was in Genesis when Genesis right before Genesis just exploded across the universe in 1980s. Uh, but but he's probably not, uh, and that that tier is interesting. I knew a, a session a, a guy who played as a bass player for country musicians in Nashville. And and he was making between sixty and eighty thousand dollars a year with no benefits. By the way, musicians don't have benefits unless they're in you the know. union. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, so he's paying it for his own health care. Sure. So and and those things. So there, to, to engineer Keith's point, there are musicians who make a living out of it, but they're not names. I, you I know. like to think of it as if I never worked a day for the rest of my life, would I have to change my my standard of living. And that number of musicians you can probably yeah. is very small. Yeah. Um, um, it's, you know, wealthy. I mean, I, I still, just as an aside, I had a high school uh, social sciences uh, teacher who told us in class, um, and we didn't believe him at the time. He said, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. But he said, I will put good money on the table right here now that almost every one of you uh, who has an average uh, working life going forward as an adult will be a millionaire in your lifetime without question. And he said, now that doesn't mean you're going to be rich. No. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's interesting because a million dollars doesn't mean anything in, that it used to. Right. If you had a million dollars in the bank, you were set, you know, going back to your certainly your childhood and probably mine. Um, now a million dollars doesn't even get you in a house in, in half this area we're sitting in right now, Southern Connecticut, um, which is just really profoundly weird. Um, <laughs> but then gas also used to cost a nickel a gallon. So what does that tell you? Well, I, I think it's, 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 you know, the industry did change, I, but it's still the same in yeah. many ways. I, I was looking up while you were talking, I was looking up the record. Ladies and gentlemen, that's his way of saying he was ignoring me. I was um, not ignoring you. I, I was coming in with a, a really, I think a valid point. Carol Kay. Yes. Her name is Carol Kay. Uh, K-A-Y-E. You have heard Carol Kay play. She's a bass player. Mm -hmm. You've heard her play 
probably thousands and thousands mm. and thousands of times. And she's probably on the radio somewhere right now as we're speaking or when you're listening. Carol Kay was the bass player in the Wrecking Crew. Mm. And the Wrecking Crew was a group of professional musicians, names you don't know, yeah. who played on lots of recordings out of L.A., and so Carol Kay's on all the Beach Boy recordings. Yeah. Carol Kay's on the Glen Campbell recordings. Carol Kay's everywhere uh, in the 60s and 70s and early 80s playing bass. And 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 the similar model, Barry Gordy had the similar model in Motown where the same guys were playing mm-hmm. on all those recordings that you hear on the session radio. Session musicians. Yeah, session studio guys. musicians. And yeah. they made they, they get made consistent money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the highs and lows of, uh, of the stars. Well, see, that is in... in I've said this again, using the acting comparison. To me, that's what you work towards. Anything that goes beyond that is, is luck it's gravy. and, yeah. and, and you, you win the lottery. Yeah. But you can't work towards that. You can envision it and say, that's my dream. But the most you can work for is to be a working artist who's paying your bills with your art. And those those faces but not name actors that we we see all the time. But uh, I've seen him around. I know I've seen that guy. Uh, These musicians you're talking about. That's realistically that's hard work, hard training, years of, of hitting the pavement and paying your dues. That's the most you can really work towards anything beyond that. Luck has stepped in and taken that hard work and brought it to another level, an opportunity, a circumstance that came along or a really brilliant marketing idea. Well, well, you know, it's funny. The song that keeps running through my head, which is now a few years old, is that Silly Baby Shark song. Yes. There's been a million songs done like that on YouTube. That one just happened to catch the ear of people at the right time and became viral. And it happened in a time when YouTube was still paying money for views, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't know that their model is. I think their model significantly, significantly changed. Yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, you, you can be that person, whomever it was, who did Baby Shark, um, but probably not. Justin Bieber. Well, the Baby Shark thing, that's a South Korean right. uh, thing. And South Korea, for the last decade or so, has an entire industry dedicated to creating those little niche hits like right. uh you remember uh gundam style yeah, yeah. That, i yeah. was thinking That's of that guy weird. yeah but they, they specifically create a look and create it so it's it's um viewable like all their videos you can watch it on a phone screen mm. and see everything it's designed to be bright and poppy and catchy so it's a hit by design it's it's exactly it's a <laughs> it is an engineered hit that's interesting and that's a south korean business model because they, they they pump them out and like every once in a while they just it, again it's also um i can't think of the name of the studio the ones that make like sharknado and those mm-hmm. really bad movies they have a policy <laughs> they never spend more than x amount on a movie but they make a lot of them this is called and, the sci-fi channel well, <laughs> but their, their policy like we'll spend a million dollars on all these movies with the idea that one out of every 20 will actually make money. Well, and, and there's also hit and it makes a lot. There's also this, which is not a, a new concept. The, um, uh, cult classic idea. Sometimes their marketing on it's so bad that it's good. <laughs> I mean, think about Sharknado and I happen to know a couple of people who, who, who work in that world of, not even B level. What is that? I, I don't level? know. I, I would call it cult <laughs> movies. Um, uh, it, it's funny though. If you're because, high and right. had a few, then you know there's some entertainment there. Well, but but a guy like uh, Bruce Campbell, yes, uh, can make a living in in that world doing his horror movies, which 
And the horror genre are very good movies. Uh, uh, the Evil Dead series and those movies. Cult classics. That's they, really, they yeah, are. But yeah. the audience is so narrow for that kind of yes. movie yeah. that you're not going to be a multi-multi-millionaire. I'm, I'm pretty sure Bruce is very comfortable. Plus, he has residuals from television. But I'll bet you, in, in, in little inside the studio, I bet you he still has to audition. Oh, probably. Uh, which is funny that you say that because I, I and our, our faithful listeners don't know, but I've been on a Natalie Wood kick. I've told you that. Mm-hmm. I've been reading everything I could find out about her. She died when she was 42. Mm-hmm. She'd been nominated for an Academy Award three times before she was 25 years old. And I, I was like, what happened? You know, what, where did she go? And she knew that she was past her age when they started telling her she was going to have to audition. <laughs> And she said, well, this is what happens when you turn 40 in Hollywood as a woman, right? In 1970-whatever. Um, 78, I believe it was. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Musicians, thankfully, well, except for the superstars who are on a look, and unless your name is Madonna, <laughs> you're in trouble once you start to look bad, I guess. Which is a shame because musically you get better with age. Um, well, and and there's a, a rabbit hole we could easily climb down where, you know, it's different for men than women when there's a visual element to the presentation. Of I was going to say, um, my dad always says Mick Jagger's been ugly his whole life. So. Well, he has. He has. And, and the only good looking guy in the band they fired. So uh. so Shelly Winters, we know who she is. Of course. Okay. Um, if you don't know who she is, you can look her up. She was a huge comedic and, and, and talented uh, actress. And there was a story that I came across, and I just pulled it up real quick, exactly on this point. Uh Late in her life, Shelley Winters was asked to audition for a project. And as if that wasn't disrespectful enough, she was told to be sure to bring along her headshot and resume. Winters arrived toting a huge carpet bag. And when asked if she brought her photo and resume for them, she opened up her bag, took out her first Academy Award and (laughs) placed it on the table before them and said, here's my photo. And doing the same thing with her second Oscar, she said, and here's my effing resume. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I was when you said her name, I was like, I'm pretty sure she won a couple Academy Awards and and was a highly thought of actress. But But most men in her stature of of career would not have i would argue been put in the same kind of and you know the, there are a thousand reasons why the the you know it's it's a different thing it's it's unfair certainly but there are elements uh that just in our culture are are received differently than uh women people of of different ethnicities so forth and so forth i'll tell you just as an aside i fully agreed a few years ago when there was the whole issue with there were no people of color in the in the oscar nominations and i agreed with some of the outrage of that because there were some really good films that should have been taken into consideration but uh you know here we go with something that we'll probably get some dirty mail about um one of the things that bothered me is black Hollywood really rallied around this issue. And you saw all kinds of arguments, campaigns, demonstrations about it. And and rightfully so. But when's the last time you've seen an Asian nominated before that year, at least? Right, right. It, it was rare before that year. Even a Hispanic. I mean, we have a handful here and there, but in those part aren't even PC terms nowadays. But, you know, for the purposes of of my telling of this, there's a far more people of black people have managed to win Oscars 
and at least be recognized in the industry than a whole slew of other fully realized cultures that are part of this entertainment industry who are never significantly given an equal playing field. And so I think it's it's very important to to really keep a wider understanding and, and perspective on the the very narrow field such as it is. Uh, it's called Key Luke Syndrome, and we've gone into movies. Uh, but Key Luke, for those who don't know, was an Asian actor in the 30s and 40s mm-hmm. and 50s. Uh, who you can see him in the Charlie Chan movies. You can see him; he's always the servant or the or whatever mm-hmm. in the movie. And, and they came to him. He he was long lived, and they came to him in his 80s, and he said, "Do, do you think those movies were racist?" And he said, "Those movies paid my bills. Sure, those movies put my kids through college." Oh. I really don't care what you think of those movies. Those movies provided me a livelihood. And so... And for him, that's a very legitimate and and reasonable thing. Now, you also have to look at the time period. Work is work. I mean, Bojangles got the same noise. You know, he's our step and fetch at this idea that, you know, how can you allow them to, you know, uh, profiteer on this this image? He's like, well... um, Bojangles was the highest paid entertainer. I'm not going to judge him for the, for taking advantage of the opportunity life gave him. You know, it's it's and, and you know to to come back to and musicians exactly yeah, the same. Come story. back to musicians. You know, you make your money the way you make it. Well, a, a great example within the music world, there was a huge thing, and they talked about it in the film. Ray Ray Charles with the Chitlin Circuit was given a lot of flack that he was willing to perform south of the Mason Dixon in halls where. He, as a black person, was performing in halls where the people of color were being made to sit. In the balcony. <laughs> if in at all. You oh, know. yeah. Um, uh, Duke Ellington, I think we talked about this, got a similar thing because he would play the Cotton Club. And as a black musician, he was allowed to perform, but no black people were allowed to patronize the place. And, you know, we can argue all day about whether he was right or wrong, but he's a musician trying to work. And well, he was putting other musicians to work that otherwise wouldn't have had the access. And, and that's the thing is, is it wasn't just Louis Armstrong. It was Louis and his band. Yes. It was Duke and his band. And these guys weren't touring with three guys. Oh, they no, no. They had a whole crew. Ray Charles, same story. Yeah. And, and you know, as time progressed and opportunity became reasonable, a lot of these guys did shift their, their model of exercise. But it is very hard or easy, I should say, to, you know, sit here with the years behind us and look back and say, well, how could they do that? Well, you live in those times and under those conditions and then see what, what, what decision would you make to feed your family? Well, and you and I, you and I both, <laughs> we both perform, we both made music and... and I'll speak for myself and feel free to chime in. A big part of what motivates me is to have someone listen and say, hey, that's really good. And I really enjoyed it. And I'd argue that's everybody. <laughs> and, and well, and I don't want to speak for other folk. I can only yeah. speak for me. Uh, and so if I, I, I'm not saying that you're compromising anything, but if, I, I would make some compromises to have people listen to what what I, I've done and and make sure that it got heard. Because in the end, my art is about the art. And <laughs> so, in the end, bottom line, it'd be great to be paid. Right. Well, the, the money is nice, but I think a lot of musicians specifically live for the art. And 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 uh, let's hit this, and then we're, we probably should need to wrap it up. But it's an interesting thing. And we touched on this earlier, uh, the shifting model of how to make a living as an artist. And I remember when I moved to L.A. aught three, whatever it was, 
Listen, back in the arts. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Just like to throw that out for anyone who knows what I'm talking about. Um, I went to a place in Beverly Hills, and I won't say the name of it, but it was a place that my brother, 20, maybe 30 years earlier, I can't remember, when he had moved to L.A., fresh out of school, um, he had gone in. It was a restaurant that was known in, in Beverly Hills to also have a live musician at the piano and so forth. And he had gone in there in one of his first gigs as a young uh, single musician out in, in, in California, Southern California. Uh, he went and he played the piano. My brother is an extraordinary stride, ragtime, boogie-woogie pianist. And uh, he made a good living for a couple of years performing at night in this place along with some other gigs he did. Fast forward 20, 30 years. I can't remember exactly uh, what year he went out there. Uh, he, I went to the same place. He said, you should check it out. I went down there and knocked on the door and, and talked to the manager and said, well, my brother played here years ago. And the guy didn't know him because he hadn't been there that long. And I said, well, I was wondering if you're still uh, you know, looking for musicians to perform and so forth. And he said, uh, we do have musicians play. They pay us to play here now. Right. And you can charge a cover at the door and maybe make back what. And I thought, wow. Times have changed. <laughs> but I, I think it's worth saying that for me, at least, to, I, I, it, I'm sure it's more, more gray than black and white. But it, I can't help but wonder, did musicians screw themselves out of this one? Oh, I think they did. I think they did. Did, did somebody say, you know, no, I'm not interested in you. And the guy said, look, I'll play for free. I'll, I'll pay for. Oh, yes. I'll, I'll, I'll play for free. Just let me, you know, I, I'm just desperate to play. Yeah. I want someone to hear my music and and say it was good, whatever it is. And the guy, well, if you're going to if I don't have to pay you, yeah, go ahead. And pretty soon not paying became you can give me 20 bucks or 10 yes. percent of the take or whatever. And, and yeah, it flips the script. I'll conclude with just a quick story of how driven some musicians are. There was a guy named Kevin Gilbert who's who's won a Grammy Award. Uh, he he died died in the 1990s uh, and his impact was he, the first Sheryl Crow release. If you go look, his name is all over it. He, mm -hmm. he wrote most of the songs on that album, uh, including All I Want to Do is Have Some Fun. Um, and Kevin Gilbert's life was his mattress in the corner of his studio that he slept on and music. And that was his life. And that's what he lived for. And so when you have a, a group of, of musicians that are like that, they're easy to take advantage of by industry. And so I, I'm going to conclude with this remark and then, then we can go into the thank you. Um, you see the guy playing on the corner and you got a buck in your pocket. Please drop it in his hat. You, you see the, pay, the artists you like on Patreon and they're asking for five or ten bucks a month. Think about throwing five or ten bucks a month for them. I mean, you know, to you, it's it's one coffee at, at Starbucks. To them, it may be food on the table for, for their families as they're trying to make their living. And, and and if you download someone and you like them, I know I can't stop you from downloading music. Uh, and it is heartbreaking when you go on some of these Russian sites and see that 10,000 copies of the Lazarus Trio have been mm -hmm. downloaded. If I gotten 25 cents for 10,000 no, yeah. copies, yeah. Um, you know, but if you download it and you like it, 
why don't you go ahead and buy some physical product or, or buy the download and, and throw a few bones the way of the artist and, and think about it. And so with that, uh, I'll let you have the final word. But well, I was just going to say, I read somewhere and I don't remember where, but it wasn't that long ago. They said, if you're walking down the street and, and a musician is doing something that makes you stop, pause and turn your head. You owe him a nickel. <laughs> At least make it a buck. Make it a buck. <laughs> but you don't get to pause, enjoy, and then keep on going. Right, they've, right. They've, no. they've, they've given you something of themselves. And, and I've thrown a buck in the, the hat of the musician. That he's terrible in the hopes that if he keeps playing that corner, eventually he's going to get good. And and, and I'm not kidding. There, 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 Many, many years ago, I saw a kid playing on plastic buckets on a uh, street corner in San Francisco. Mm. Showed back up 20 years later. That was now a grown man who could really play those plastic <laughs> buckets on the corner. How so, sad that he was still on the corner, though. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I, I want to thank... Uh, it's great to have you in the studio. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's uh, too bad we can't do it every week. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's, uh, it's great that we have this technology that can bring us together here. And uh, Keith, uh, our illustrious engineer, editor, contributing, and occasional co-host, Keith Zdrojevi, we want to thank you. He's in the uh, the booth with his boys today, actually. Making obscene gestures, too. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, as far as uh, go, what, what are their names? Well, Graham, the older one, he destroyed his house and rebuilt it in Minecraft. Oh, okay. okay. Right. He accidentally blew it up. I'm going to pretend I know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> when I was your age. And Corey is asking what every single button does. Well, That's right, Corey. Go. You keep asking. Just don't, say, touch. don't touch. Don't touch. <laughs> Especially the red one. He was switching the video <laughs> the whole time, though. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> well, great to have everybody with us. We do record, and our show is produced here at Sacred Heart University in Southern Connecticut. And I'd like to thank the uh, School of Communication and the Arts and Jim Castengay, the, the good doctor, for... Uh, his uh, contributions to to our efforts here of course uh the lazarus trio who brings us in and takes us out with every episode carl groves and of course my uh, illustrious co-host uh dr mike koniger well thank you and and to charles frederick sacris the uh, other co-host who who carries the show on his shoulders uh, and i want to thank you faithful listeners uh thank you we we appreciate those of you who listen every week i do watch the numbers please Please give us those five-star reviews on Apple and be sure to shoot us an email at... Uh, Civil Discourse TNSS. This is not a safe space at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your hopes, your dreams. You agree with us. We're the most brilliant people you've ever met and We're heard. We're the dumbest, dumbest guys you ever or heard. Or how we'll are they who let them out of the asylum? Whatever the range of your thoughts and, and, and ideas, we want to hear it. So please reach out to us here at Civil Discourse. And tell your friends. Tell Tell your friends, share us, please. Uh, with that, I want to thank you and everyone. Please be kind to one another, and Charles will take us out. Tune in next time for more civil discourse on the road again.
surrender.